So I invite you to turn with me to Zechariah 4, and we're going to unfold this amazing vision. This is Zechariah's fifth vision, and it's the centerpiece of all his visions. And in the midst of many ornate details of structures, of tubes of gold, ancient olive trees, golden oil, there's a simple and timeless message here that we should be eager to preach everywhere we have opportunity. And the message is simply this, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all the earth, who shines radiantly as the light of the world. And God the Father will fill the earth with his glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen to that? That's Zechariah chapter 4. This fifth vision provides us this vision of the triune Godhead who gloriously enables his eternal plan to come to fruition in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to come to fruition when Christ triumphs over the world at his second coming. And that's where we need to sit. And so Zechariah 4, it's, it's a long chapter, but it can be divided in three different parts that squarely point to Christ. And that way, if we can look at these points and see Zechariah preaching Christ to us, then we won't lose Christ amid all the details. So let's follow the direction of this simple outline so that we can hear Zechariah preach to us about Jesus Christ. The first point is really from verses 1 to 3. Zechariah preaches about Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Behold the light of the world, as we've entitled this sermon. The second major point that Zechariah preaches about Jesus Christ is in verses 4 to 10. Verses 4 to 10, he preaches about Jesus Christ as what? The ultimate Davidic king. The ultimate Davidic king. And thirdly, in verses 11 to 14, to finish off vision 5, Zechariah preaches about Jesus Christ as the unique king priest. The unique king priest together who will always reign and always glorify God all over the whole earth. Now, isn't that a message that we want to share? You can do that once we go through this vision. So let's get caught up with Zechariah here with this rapture of his radiant vision where all eyes are on Jesus Christ. And let's look at these intricate details that shine forth the the beauty of this glorious one, this radiant vision of Christ, the one and only, the Messiah, who is the light of the world, the ultimate Davidic king, and the king priest of the earth forever. Let's read verses 1 to 3, and let's focus first on Zechariah's uh, first preaching opportunity about Jesus, the light of the world. The text says, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me, as a man who is roused from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Well, of all the images portrayed in these initial verses, the central image, the most emphasized image is the golden lampstand. Now, from our contemporary Western mindset, it might be hard for us to see the significance of a lampstand, let alone connect it to Christ. But the original readers in Zechariah's day, as the bricks of the second temple are being laid on top of each other, as they're resuming the work, 
and the interior furnishings are also in the works. The lampstand would have piqued great interest. That's because both the tabernacle and the temple had lampstands, menorahs. They had these giant candelabras that burned olive oil, which were also made of gold. And we read about those menorahs in Exodus 25 and 1 Kings 7. So it's set in their minds. Now, the golden lampstand in Zechariah's vision it definitely connects to Israel's house of worship throughout all time. They would have understood that. Well, there's the interpreting angel. He's returned for this vision, and he guides the prophet to ask important questions about what he sees. At the root of this vision is the question of what this lampstand represents and how it functions in the worship of God's people. And that is the question, isn't it? To understand the nature and the function of Zechariah's golden lampstand, think most basically about what a lampstand does. It gives light, physical, sensible light. Now, if you look at the concept of light from the Old Testament development of this concept, then you see a few different features beyond just physical, sensible light, and these also bear out in Zechariah's vision of the lampstand. So let me walk you through a little bit of light theology, we could say. Light was God's first creation, and so it is most associated with God's presence and God's person. It brings the idea of that which is good, that which is comforting, like the presence of God, and it symbolizes God's blessing, like the effect of God's light when it shines on God's people. Number 625 is a great reference point here. It's the, uh, the ironic blessing, and specifically verse 25, Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh is said in Psalm 27.1 to be robed with light, and God becomes then to David, as to all of us, my light and my salvation. We see the spiritual significance of God's light. It symbolizes victory over the darkness, salvation from destruction of the dark world, and God's light is closely associated with his glory. Now, Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 3 is worth reading because this puts God's light and God's glory together to describe the future redemption of his people from all his enemies. This is a redemption that comes through Messiah, the Savior, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and dense gloom the peoples. But Yahweh will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will, will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Now, you might hear in Isaiah 60 uh, a foreshadowing of what we learn in Revelation chapter 21, which describes the eternal reality of God with his people on the new earth. Revelation 21, verses 24 to 26 says this, And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, speaking of the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never be closed by day, for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So, the Old Testament's figurative use of the term light connects seamlessly with the New Testament's symbolic use of the term. Think again about the person and the presence of God. 1 John 1.5 says the Father is light. God is light. And he sent his Son into the world. John 1 proclaims that he is the light and John 1.9 specifically says he is the true light, which comes in, coming into the world enlightens everyone. 
Now, this is how the Lord Jesus Christ says of himself in John 12, 46. He says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Beautiful. 1 Peter 2, 9 goes on and it affirms that God through Christ has what? He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that you can do what? 1 John 1, 7 says, so that you can walk in the light. And John 12, 36 says, as sons of light, you will walk in the light. Those who believe in Jesus, Jesus who is the light of the world. So is, this, is it any wonder then that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in association with the redemptive work of Jesus, the light of the world, is illumination to illuminate the blind spiritual eyes of the sinner so that the sinner beholds the glorious light of the gospel. Makes sense, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 4.6 describes that illuminating work of the Holy Spirit specifically as regeneration. The, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God, who said light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we can understand the life-transforming effect of the glorious light when it is shining on a sinner. Consider the murderer, Saul. We picked him up in the first message today. He's on the road to, to Damascus in Acts 9.3, and what does he see? It says, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. That glorious revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ initiated his new life as the Apostle Paul. Later, Paul so closely identified his evangelistic ministry with his glorious Christ, the light of the world, that in Acts 13, 47, he applied Isaiah's prophecy to himself, and it was a prophecy about Christ. He said, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you, speaking now of Paul, as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Well, this is just a brief study on how light functions in that spiritual sense in the Old and the New Testament, but it helps us understand this lampstand and the light that it gives in Zechariah's fifth vision. So let's get back to Zechariah now. As Zechariah received his revelation through symbols associated with a future reality, he is envisioning the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This is unmistakable. On display before Zechariah is this golden, shining, radiant glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He's not named as such until his incarnation, and we see his earthly ministry in his first coming, but he is clearly in vision here. So right from the start, we can answer the question of what the lampstand represents, and we can also answer how it functions in the worship of God's people. Zechariah is viewing a symbol of the brilliant glory of his Messiah. And the function of the lampstand at the center of this vision is to reveal God's glorious light. This is a light that redeems, a light that comforts, a light that illuminates his people. It is a light with an everlasting quality, an everlasting reality. God, who will forever dwell on the earth, will fill the whole world with his glorious light. Do you feel another amen coming on? This is a message that we need today, and they need everywhere, because we're preaching Christ from Zechariah. 
Jesus Christ, this light of the world, is unique. And so you can expect that the golden lampstand is going to be unique. It's not simply the kind of golden lampstand that was constructed for the tabernacle or for the temple. And what we know about those menorahs is they needed, first off, a constant supply of oil, which meant that it was the duty of the priest to supply the oil to fill up the, the, the candles themselves. Otherwise, pretty quickly, the lights would go out and the symbol of God's presence, which they're to represent, would grow dim. But Zechariah sees three unique structural features for this particular menorah, and you find them in our passage. We want to take note of them. First, there was a reservoir bowl that was placed on top of the candelabra. So you can imagine a menorah with with its seven candles, and then somehow on top of it is this basin, this reservoir bowl. And it's placed there so that the candles would always have oil supplying them. It had a constant flow of fuel so that the candles would continuously burn. Notice that that means that the lampstand didn't need priests to refill it. Now, think of what the imagery means in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that no human intervention is necessary for the glorious light of Jesus Christ to shine forever. He supplies his own presence for eternity out of what? Out of the inexhaustible reservoir of his eternal glory. I want to say amen. This is just one unique feature, though. A second unique feature of this particular candelabra is that there were seven lamps with seven spouts that pour from the bowl to each of the lamps. That the menorah has seven lamps as expected. That's not unique. But what is unique is that each lamp is filled with oil from seven spouts just to one candle and seven more spouts to the next and the next and the next all the way for the seven. That's 49 spouts. Or in Hebrew, it's more the idea of pipes, conduits. And they channel the oil from the bowl, which is on top, and now seven of these pipes flow into each lamp. That's a lot of pipes connecting to the lamps uh, from that reservoir of oil. And notice that recurring number seven. This image speaks of perfection or completion or fullness. And think of what this imagery means in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all eternity, the glory of Christ will shine in its fullness in a self-filling, self-operating way. Christ needs no help. He needs no guidance to deliver his radiant light in fullest effect across the earth. Now, there's a third unique feature to this lampstand in the vision. And in verse 3, we learn that it is flanked by two olive trees. We'll learn more about those later in the vision. Verse 12 describes that the two trees pour oil directly into the bowl from themselves. And in terms of Christ, what we can immediately understand from this is that the supply of oil was endless. Now, in southern Italy, where my family is originally from and where Irma lived a lot of her life, uh, olive trees are everywhere, and they're ancient, Uh, very thick, very gnarly, And some of them date back hundreds, if not even thousands of years. And they're still producing olives today. Now, so imagine the imagery of two olive trees. And 
what it suggests in terms of the production of oil. Now, we will understand here in this vision that these olive trees are of divine origin. They're not connected to the earth in any way. And because they're of divine origin, they'll never come to an end. The olive trees are as ancient as the ancient of days. So think of that imagery in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. What could this mean? Well, the abundant light of Christ's glory will always shine over all the earth, perpetually filling the hearts of these sons of light. Jesus truly is the light of the world. He's never going to grow dim. He's never going to be spent. The light of Christ will never need assistance. He will never need replenishing from an outside source. He will be so full of his glory everywhere that as the light radiates out, there are no shadows. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Well, before we move to the second part of Zechariah's vision, I'm just really filled up with all of this beautiful imagery as we preach Christ in Zechariah 4. And so let's just make some simple application right here, right now. And let me make a simple application in the form of a question. First off, we see that the prophet has Jesus Christ as the center of his vision. But the application question is this, do you? Do you have Jesus Christ at the center of your vision? Remember that Zechariah is writing at a time of great strain as the people are working up the nerve to pick up the construction in the temple. It's been put on hold for 16 years due to persecution and now a growing apathy of their own. And remember that that's Haggai's indictment in his book. But what if they face pressure and opposition again as they pick up their tools? What if rebuilding the temple just isn't worth it? Maybe it just needs to stay in our memories as something glorious. Well, this depiction of this radiant Messiah means everything to these apprehensive and apathetic people. In fact, they end up finishing the whole second temple in just four years from this time. Can you imagine? Well, they're encouraged by this vision of Messiah when they're on the precipice of a very difficult task that they don't feel up to. So with Zechariah, I ask you this, is Jesus the center of your vision in difficult times? Are you in a time of stress or strain or opposition? Maybe you feel overworked, overwhelmed, or maybe you just can't find the motivation to serve him with your whole heart. Maybe you've lost perspective. Maybe you no longer feel the sense of purpose for your labor for Christ, or maybe you have it really good right now, and maybe you sense his many blessings in your life and ministries. Apathy can grow there too. No matter your circumstances or how you feel, you need to focus your gaze on Christ. So set your eyes on Jesus. This is the focus of Hebrews 12. He's authored your faith. He's agonized on your behalf. He's finished this race of faith. Only he could run it so perfectly. So he is already at the finish line. He's already resting from his troubles, and he wants you to look to him. He wants you to see him where he now sits, at the right hand of the throne of God. So focus on Christ as the center of your vision. Look to him, seek him while he may be found. Ask him to illuminate his word as you read it so you would see him bright and glorious again. Amen? Okay, let's move to the second point. 
Okay, now as we move into the second part, uh, we're in verse 4, moving through a large chunk to verse 10. And here, the prophet preaches about another aspect of Jesus Christ, in addition to being the light of the world. He's also this ultimate Davidic king. You'll notice pretty quickly that in this section of Vision 5, it becomes Trinitarian in nature. We see the triune God, God the Father, through the Son, depicted as the lampstand as we've seen, will be glorified in His temple in the fullness of His glorious light by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is fully at work to mediate God's presence across the face of the earth forever. Now, here's how the passage lays out, so you can just scan along as we go. We won't read all these verses. Zechariah considers all the intricate symbols before him, and he asks the interpreting angel for an explanation. Well, instead of directly answering him, the angel follows up with a question of his own that serves to build anticipation for an answer. Zechariah responds that he's stumped. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't we be if we're looking at this? So the angel finally explains what he's seeing, and that helps us to understand. Notice the answer in verse 6. The angel connects this vision to Zerubbabel. And that might surprise you, since we're talking about the lampstand who is Christ, and now we're bringing in a historic figure, Zerubbabel. But we've seen this overlap between Christ and a human figure before. At the center of the fourth vision in chapter 3 that you just walked through last week is this other major historic figure, Joshua, and he represents Christ the high priest in his vision. So here is Zerubbabel, who is the governor in the line of Judah, represents the kingly role of Jesus, who is the rightful Davidic heir. By divine right and by human lineage, Jesus is a better Zerubbabel. He is the ultimate Davidic king, and he's going to fulfill the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. So how exactly does this insert of Zerubbabel in this vision fit with Jesus and the lampstand? That would be a good question. If you have it, you're tracking with me. Well, what we want to know is how the lampstand's connection to Zerubbabel ultimately reinforces what we've already seen, that the glorious light of God's presence is radiated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What's, I guess you could say it this way, what's the value add for bringing Zerubbabel in at this point? Well, the passage develops a glorious answer for us. You see, Zerubbabel is responsible before God to finish building the second temple, and he will, which you learn about uh, more in Haggai. In fact, in verse 9 of our passage, he says that Zerubbabel is going to finish the job. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. It's as good as done under Zerubbabel's charge. Well, if we work our way from verse 6 forward, we're going to see how this mention of Zerubbabel is scaled up to a glorious vision of King Jesus, who is the greater ultimate Zerubbabel, the true Davidic king. Take a look at verse 6. It's a famous verse. You probably have memorized it. You might even know it in some form of a song. And what does it say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. The Lord of all the armies of heaven, Yahweh of hosts, will ensure that the temple is constructed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Temple won't be built through might, not through human resources like wealth, military ingenuity. It won't be accomplished through power, like sheer human force of will and muscle. These aren't sufficient to meet the demands for this glorious structure in the future. No, the building project is not a project for any mere mortal. 
It is singularly the work of God. It's the work of God alone, by his Holy Spirit alone, to the praise of God alone, for the glory of God alone. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Sheesh. Well, consider the role of the Holy Spirit at this point in the vision. He enables great men like Zerubbabel to, con- to, to build up great structures for the purpose of worship. But no true worship of God is possible unless the Holy Spirit does this divine work of regenerating the heart and bringing in the light of the glory of God. And even now, God is using his Holy Spirit to regenerate sinners all across the face of the world. But imagine this promise of one day all the earth filled with true worshipers. Everyone in the millennium, in that first generation, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. They will recognize God's glory as established in the fullness of his glory across the earth through his Son, and the Holy Spirit will mediate that. What an amazing ministry. Now, according to verse 7, Zerubbabel, who functions like a Davidic king in this generation of his, he's going to be providentially guided to accomplish the building of the second temple in his day. Nothing's going to stand in his way. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is steering the work. It is important that he does what he does. Verse 7 says, What are you, O great mountain? Every mountain will come crashing down before him, leveled low like a plain. This might be hyperbolic as a statement, but the idea is there's nothing too big for God if he's got a plan that he's going to enact, and he will. And when this great leader, Zerubbabel, finally sets the top stone on the temple, imagine the shouts, imagine the triumph. And what are these shouts? It's a great victory cry of grace, grace to it. The people are going to celebrate God's unmerited favor to them. They're going to see revealed in a very tangible way that God is near, that God is kind to his people. Grace is in their vision. And they're going to make this loud exclamation, which says, actually, it's like a peal of thunder. It's it's that noisy of a, of a clamor of victory. And they will do that when the top stone is set. Now, catch that stone reference. You saw it last week in 3.9. The top stone refers, uh, or seems to, uh, refer back to the stone who is Messiah in that vision. But we know from Psalm 118 and throughout the Gospels and in Acts 4 that Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So grace, grace to it when the cornerstone is set. All praise points to Jesus. He is the true top stone. He is our cornerstone. He is the centerpiece of all true worship. We praise him. Now, interestingly, verse 8 introduces a new person. It's not the interpreting angel here. And this new person begins to speak to Zechariah. Verse 8 reads, Also the word of Yahweh came to me. Did you catch that? The word of Yahweh? Here comes the one called the word of Yahweh. Who is that? That's the divine logos, the word of God himself. 
It is Jesus that we see in verses 8 and 9, who is simultaneously depicted as the golden lampstand and the ultimate Davidic king. And here, look at what the, what's happening here. Look at the impact this would make. King Jesus himself comes in to tell Zechariah in this vision that when he witnesses this near prophecy of the top stone and the second temple being completed, then he will know with certainty that God the Father is going to keep his promise to the Davidic covenant to send his son to the world a second time to build that millennial temple and ultimately to reign from an eternal temple with the triune Godhead on the new earth. This is what Christ comes in to affirm. He sent, he says, to Zechariah to ensure him that God is going to keep his promise. It'll take one greater than Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, to fulfill that promise. So yes, we see the governor, but we're seeing the king far off as we see through him. Zerubbabel points to the truest, greatest, ultimate Davidic king, and he will establish God's glorious presence in all the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, who Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1 call the Spirit of Christ. That's why in our vision, in verse 10, Jesus takes up Haggai's comforting thought that we had studied at that point, that there's nothing small in what Israel is doing at this point. In their day through Zerubbabel, God is intensely pleased because it matters that there's a temple to show God's grace and his favor on them and his glorious presence in their midst. But it all points to the day that he will fulfill his promise to never leave Israel, nor forsake her. And this humble temple is a great example and a reminder to them. And so it is no small thing. So given the reality of God's favor, verse 10 goes on to say that the omniscient God, quote, roams to and fro throughout the earth. Now this specifically, I I understand this can be a, a bit of a challenge interpretively, but it depicts the Holy Spirit with his seven eyes, and there was already a reference to seven eyes in the previous chapter, and this is the perfect number that denotes his perfect ability to see all things. The Holy Spirit takes so much joy in the work of the Lord under Zerubbabel's leadership in that generation because it points to that perfect work that the ultimate Zerubbabel, Jesus Christ, the truest and greatest Davidic king, is going to do. And so, as we close this section then of the vision, where Zechariah is preaching about Jesus Christ as the Davidic king, and King Jesus himself even affirms the validity of the vision, let's pull out a couple more application points. Let's sit in this a little while longer. First, Jesus Christ makes himself available for you to worship. And not only does he make himself available, but you must worship him. You must worship Christ. And when you do worship Christ, do so with the ambition that the Holy Spirit who searches far and wide with that perfect vision across the earth that he finds you as worshiping Christ in spirit and in truth. Worship him rightly. I would encourage you to value your personal time with the Lord. Worship him not out of duty, but out of enjoyment. That's being empowered by the Holy Spirit to to bask in his light. Will you shout 
grace as you think of Scripture and as you thank him, will you have those peals of thunder coming out of you, those shouts of thanks in your heart for his grace poured out on you, your cornerstone? The second thing is don't lose sight of Christ in this world of easy distractions. Don't forget that to be in his presence through prayer and through the word means that you are in his glorious light. Yes, one day we'll see Christ face to face. We'll worship him in Zion more sincerely and more fully than we've ever worshiped him here in this life. But today, seek spiritual fellowship with Jesus. Draw on those means of grace that his Holy Spirit makes available to you. You'll find his kind smile upon you. You'll find the lamp of his word guiding you. You'll find his glory shielding you from the wicked and corrupt generation of this dark world. Jesus isn't just tomorrow's solution to the darkness of this life. He is your rescue in this very moment. He is the light unto your path. Can I get an amen to that? All right. Let's move on to the third part, verses 11 to 14. Now, in these final verses, Zechariah preaches about Jesus Christ, this unique king priest who will always reign and glorify God on the whole, world, uh, on the whole earth, this unique king priest. Let's read together the rest of this passage from verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves. So he spoke to me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, in the vision of the lampstand and the olive trees, Zechariah needs more answers, and he's ready for them at this point. So in verse 11, he asks that interpreting angel a rather basic question at first in order to receive a basic clarification. But apparently, it wasn't a very good question. Yes, it's true. As a professor, I can attest to, not every question is a good question. And this is what happens, because in verse 12, Zechariah has to rephrase the question. He asks a different version of that question a second time, probably because there was a bit of radio silence. Now, if the first question was more about what these elements represent, basic question, then the second question has to do with how the elements relate. And this is because Zechariah looks more intently in this vision at those two olive trees that flank the lampstand, and he notices that each has a branch that comes out of the tree that connects with a golden pipe. So that what happens is the trees pour out their oil, and it's not just any oil. What it says is it's golden oil, directly into the golden pipes, right into the reservoir bowl at the top of the lampstand. So we've already seen at the beginning of the vision that the oil from the trees fills the bowl of oil, which is above the lampstand. But in verse 13, after that second question is asked, the interpreting angel presses Zechariah to see if he can figure out the symbolism. But he's stumped again. I would be too. So in verse 14, the angel describes the olive trees as the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And this is to say that they supply from themselves all that the lampstand needs in order to shine the glory of God's presence 
across the world. Can you picture that? So keep in mind that we've already established that Jesus is divine, and he needs no help from man. No man could help him because he can only be fueled from within himself for eternal ministry as the light of the world. So these two anointed ones can't be human figures. They have to be divine figures. And since Jesus is independent of all helpers, then only a divine figure could stand at his left and at his right. Now, there are many different interpretations. Most of them are about human figures or uh, historical references or um, Paul's uh, Romans 11 uh, grafted and cultivated olive branches uh, and or Judah and Ephraim, a lot of different types of interpretations. But Zechariah's vision and the explanations help us to understand that on either side of Christ, the lampstand, there are two distinct roles that he himself represents. I know what you might be thinking. What about a divine uh, figure, the Father on one side and the Spirit on another? That's not what's happening here. Now, how do we know this? Well, you consider how in Zechariah's other visions, he's developed symbolism for his kingly role and his priestly role. Joshua the priest was prominent in the prior chapter, chapter 3, And in chapter 6, Zechariah is going to emphasize the roles of both the king and the priest in the true worship of God in the temple. Hold that in mind. So the best view then for our passage is that the two olive trees are on the one side his kingly role, not a human king, couldn't do anything to help him, his kingly role, and then on the other side would be his priestly role both of which play their part in achieving the full worship of God in all eternal glory on the earth. These two roles, it says in verse 14, stand with the lampstand to facilitate this resplendent glory, the true worship in his temple. Well, Jesus himself has to be the king that is pictured on the one side, and he has to be the priest that is pictured on the other side of the lampstand. It's most fitting that those offices flank the lampstand because they belong to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they directly connect to him, and they feed into him to provide fuel for him for all eternity. They pour out their golden oil so that Christ is worshiped as the glorious king and priest over all the earth forever. Well, what we're seeing here is very unique. It's a very dramatic representation Now, we understand from the Old Testament that the king is a distinct role in God's design for his people Israel. The priest is a distinct role from that of the king. The king wears the ornate crown, the priest wears the turban. And you saw that in Zechariah 3.5 with Joshua. Now, in the Old Testament, priests can exert authority, but they don't make the laws. And kings can command worship, but they can't offer the sacrifices themselves. The king cannot be the priest, according to God's design for Israel. You know what happens when a king attempts to make a sacrifice on the altar, right? It results in disaster unless the priest does it on his behalf. At 1 Samuel 13, King Saul loses his kingdom as a result. Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah was struck with leprosy for attempting the same. But in Christ, the king and the priest they merge, just like those two trees pour into 
the one lampstand, the two into one. That's what's unique and dramatic. Now, we'll see later in Zechariah 6, verse 11 specifically, that the king's crown is going to sit on the priest's head. That signifies the merging of the two roles in the person of Jesus Christ. But in verse 14, the final verse of our passage here, we see the kingly and priestly roles of Christ who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. And as they stand by him, they energize him. They glorify him. He is now this unified king-priest, Jesus. Jesus, our king, possesses all authority over heaven and earth. And he is always going to exert his righteous rule everywhere with his rod of iron from Zion. And Jesus, our high priest, establishes true worship on the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the redeemed. And one day he's going to institute perfect worship in his temple. And all the world, like the kings of the earth, will bring the glory that they have been bestowed by him back to him so that he is all in all. So what can we say? Behold, the light of the world. Behold, our Davidic king. Darkness and wickedness, they permeate our view for today. But at the end of this age, Christ will radiate his glory for all to see. He will vanquish every sin. He will cast out every shadow. And he alone, with his authority, will establish righteousness and institute perfect worship across the world as the Lord of all the earth, so that God himself is glorified everywhere by everyone. Do you long for that? Well, a few more concluding exhortations can kick in here, and I pray that you will receive them today, and that Zechariah chapter 4, this central vision of the book, can be for you a vision of Christ the way it was for Zechariah. So, couple concluding applications. First, respond. Respond to Zechariah's clear preaching by magnifying in your hearts this glorious Christ. Make him the center of your field of vision. Actively draw your thoughts away from the dark things, from those lesser comforts. Contemplate the radiating glory of your Redeemer. Colossians 1.13 says that he rescued us from the authority of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love. Your only true and lasting comfort comes from the light of the world who rescued you. So respond by actively drawing your thoughts away from darkness and toward his light. Second, repent of the idols of your heart. Repent of the idols of your heart. Where there is a darkness creeping into your line of sight as you attempt to see Christ, even as you pray or as you read his word, reject it. Don't consider any longer any particular sin that you've nurtured as being of some value in your life. Don't give it the value that you have given it. Consider it in view of the surpassing riches of his grace and repent. 
Do what 1 Peter 2.9 says, that deep in your mind and in your heart you should proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And finally, run. Run to the light of Christ. Run to Christ. Commune more deeply with him today. There is grace and there is mercy at his throne There is peace and there is calm at his feet. There is joy and there is pleasure in his embrace. Run to him in this very moment. Now, if you've never beheld Jesus as the light of the world, if he is not central in your vision, don't wait for his visible return in all the flashing lights of heaven to see him as glorious. See him today as glorious the way Zechariah saw him in his day and has passed down this vision to you. Jesus is full of glory. He's God himself. And he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to enliven your heart and illuminate your spiritual eyes so that you can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Call out to him, the light of the world, the king that commands you, to seek him and find him, radius, uh, radiant, glorious, your all in all. Let's pray. Father, in light of everything that we've seen here in Zechariah 4, in this magnificent vision of your son, we humbly ask you, that in the light of the glory of your son, this perfect king priest, do what the ironic blessing seeks for you to do in our lives. Bless us. Keep us. Make your face shine on us. Be gracious to us. God, lift up your face on us and give us peace. Amen.